Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I have to begin by saying I have been looking forward to recording today's episode for a while, uh, for multiple reasons, which I will share in just a moment. But first, a quick detail for you, maybe even call it a programming note. I am going to be leaving for Israel, and I'll be there for a couple of weeks, and then I'm going to return from there for about 48 hours before I take off with my family because it's my kids' spring break. And uh, I'm looking forward to both of those things, but because of travel, there's only going to be one episode of the podcast in March, which is today's episode, which I'm telling you, it's enough for probably a year, Uh, but it means no episode on March 27. But we will resume our regular schedule in April, so after today, the next episode will drop April 9. So that's the detail, and now I get to share with you why I have been looking forward to recording today's episode. First, it's because I get to spend time with one of my favorite people, my good friend, Paula Williams. Paula, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Good to be back. You are the first repeat guest in the history of the podcast. I mean, we're only 34 episodes in. But but this is exciting. It's kind of like, do I get... if you do, you give me a special jacket if I do it five times, like they do on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, they, that's the velvet bathrobe. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I should do that. Yeah. Uh, I always say it's one thing to be invited to speak somewhere; it's a whole other thing to be invited back. It is a little more pressure the second time. Yeah, I've been invited to speak a lot of places once. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Oh my goodness! So Paula is here, uh, and the reason she here is the reason she's here is the second reason I'm excited, uh, and that's this. In 2017, someone put a book in my hands titled "The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion." It's authored by a fellow named Jonathan Haidt, and if you know me, and you've listened to the podcast, you know I love talking about politics and religion. Uh, but here's the thing: the book isn't really about politics and religion, but about why we divide over these things. And the content and the research and the conclusions are fantastic. And then Paula read the book, and I think every time we've been together since, we find ourselves talking about it. And so finally we said, we need to do a podcast about this, and here we are. So today we're going to talk a little bit, um, it's going to be kind of book discussion slash interview Um, and hopefully we'll be able to explore some of the ideas in the book and really about why we are so divided. Because if there's anything we need to understand a little bit more about these days, it's how we can be a part of healing the division, not adding to it. So with that said, let's jump in. Uh, In the book, Jonathan Haidt begins by describing the way we process information, and he uses this metaphor as an elephant uh, and a writer as the way our, our emotions and our intellectual side work together. So, Paula, can you talk us through that a little bit? You know, there were a lot of images in this book that worked for me from the very beginning. This one actually did not. I had a hard time um, grasping it until I kind of went back earlier in the book and realized that the key premise of the early part of the book is that we as a species are not primarily rational. We are primarily intuitive. And our intuitions come from all kinds of different stimuli that come into our lives, but particularly come from our backgrounds, from our environment, from the language we speak, from our parents, from the culture we're a part of. And that we actually 
do not make most of our decisions at a rational basis. We make most of our decisions intuitively, somewhere beneath our cerebral cortex. And so when I understood that, you realize that um, it is not, in fact, arguments that cause us to take the positions we take. Uh, we use arguments, then, to justify the positions we have already intuitively taken. And that, to me, is the premise that the entire book sits upon, that we're not primarily a rational species, we're primarily an intuitive species that then makes rational arguments to back up our intuitions. So once I understood that, then I could see the elephant as the intuitive yes, and the writer as the rational. Yes. And understand just that particular uh, image just wasn't doing much for Didn't me. Didn't do much for you? But once I put it in that context, the elephant is the much, much larger influencer. Yes. And the, and the writer elephant being is being the, the intuitive self. The emotional, the, yes. Right. Um, that part of us. We do make changes, um, and we make changes when we take in new information. But I think it's the other singular to me it's the singular most important thing about the entire book this is like a reveal too early in the conversation um, but, <laughs> but it this, is where the book begins well but i think the single most important point is that we don't change our intuition without new information and we do not accept new information unless it comes to us in a non-threatening way yes and that to me was life-changing to realize that all those debates I used to have to read in theology class about the 19th century, nobody ever changed their minds based on these debates over whether or not God existed. Same thing with a lot of the debates back in C.S. Lewis's day. Nobody changed their mind. You change your mind when you get new information that arrives in a non-threatening way. Mm -hmm. That then causes the elephant to have even more power. And that is when we start making the shifts. And I realize that my entire life is actually, at this point, built so much on that premise. Yeah. Yeah, we often, uh, I can't remember who it was that described that we, we think of our rational selves or the way that we process information, move throughout the world, engage in conversations as though we're on a really well-trained horse and we have total control over it. And every once in a while, the horse will get spooked by something and kind of buck you off. And that's the temper tantrum or the flashes of anger. Um, and we think that way because the furniture of our culture in America has been set largely by enlightenment thinkers right. and was even designed before them by uh, Greco-Roman philosophy, Neoplatonism, all of that stuff. But the reality is, is the elephant being actually not very well behaved and that the, he uses the image of what, a lawyer on it? Yeah. Um, that the lawyer is trying to explain why we are acting, thinking, believing. And what's, what I find fascinating is the number of people who just that idea, um, as I've talked about this book, feel resistance to it, feel almost threatened by it. Because what it's really suggesting is that we're not as smart as we think we are. Yeah, it is. Um, I've noticed a fair number of people read the first couple of chapters and read no further mm -hmm. uh, because they're annoyed with what he is saying. They don't <laughs> like it. Which is an emotional and, reaction. Which is an emotional <laughs> reaction and response. You know, I also find it interesting when you look at, at um, how we tend to 
to see these things. We've got the same issue in the religious world because, you know, we certainly at this point in the evangelical community that a lot of us have come out of, we trace our roots not back so much to the teachings of Jesus as we do back to Platonic times, mm -hmm. to that sense of Plato with God as a demiurge, this power that causes everything to happen that happens, that then carries on from the Edict of Milan on, down through particularly Augustine, and then through John Calvin, down to evangelical thought uh, today. And all of it just kind of goes at the same level as the Enlightenment. It's a modern age kind of a thinking that that puts the rational mind. You know, I, I think of the philosopher John Locke who said a rational God created a rational man to, who could use his rational mind in a rational way. Yeah. Um, you know, okay, we got your point there, um, Mr. Locke. And that, of course, is not how we function. I also find it interesting from my own experience that it is <coughs> men who find an easier time living with this myth that they are primarily rational creatures because... Men tend to fire neurons within hemispheres, not across hemispheres. So if hmm. you look at a male brain, it's primarily firing within its left or its right hemisphere. And it can cross over hemispheres, but it's like driving across Manhattan at rush hour, midtown. <laughs> it's just going to take a while, and it's not going to happen very often. Women, on the other hand, they're brains, when you look at the firing of neurons, looks like a ball of twine. They're constantly moving back and forth between uh, hemispheres. So women tend to look at all of life more holistically, whereas men tend to compartmentalize. The artistic side of us is on one side, and the rational side of us is on the other side. And yeah. we don't want to acknowledge how much of us is rational. And I say we because one of the studies we've discovered in transgender people's brains is that our brains function about halfway between male and female, probably from the time we're born. Wow. So we have more crossover between hemispheres than most men, but not as much as women. Once you stop testosterone and start estrogen, then you get more and more crossover between hemispheres, and that's been fascinating just to observe how much more holistic my thinking has become in the years since I've been on hormones and not <coughs> affected by testosterone. And when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about the number of times, Beth and I were just having this conversation, that if a man becomes angry, he's pissed. If a woman becomes angry, she's, quote, emotional, mm -hmm. which is yeah. not, for those of you listening, in case you didn't pick that up, that's not a compliment. <laughs> um, and so there's almost a belittling of the idea of being emotional, and yet we're all emotional creatures. I was in um, with a group of pastors last spring, and... One of them, we were in a conversation about some theological something, and one of them said, I have walked through this rationally. And he was saying it with such a deep passion. Oh, yeah. And I said to him, if it's rational, why is there so much emotion behind it? Uh -huh. And that led to a really good conversation about, like, wait a second, we're, we're all, even the people with whom we disagree the most fervently, we've all used the same processes to arrive at our conclusions, though our conclusions might be different. Yep, I do a lot of lecturing on uh, gender inequity around the country. And one of the points that I make is that uh, there's a myth that women are more emotional at work than men. And yet study after study shows that's actually not true. Men are far more emotional at work than women, but the emotion most commonly expressed by men is anger. 
And it's all right for a man to be angry. Mm-hmm. It's not all right for a woman to be angry. Uh, she's seen as bitchy and she's seen as out of control. Uh, when in reality, women are far less emotional in the work environment than men. Why, do you know why that is? Um, because they have to be. Because if women are more emotional... You know, a woman is always on a knife edge when she's in any kind of a work environment. If she is too strong, she's seen as bitchy. If she's too acquiescent, she's seen as not a leader. And so she's got to ride that knife edge all the time. She already isn't seen um, for the aggregate body of her work. Women tend to be judged on their most recent offering. So they don't get the benefit of the doubt when they come into a meeting. And as soon as they begin to show emotion, Hmm. our culture is so patriarchal that men tend to think, well, they're not being rational because they're being emotional. Yeah, you're being emotional. And it's not the way, like a man thinks he's allowed to be angry and say, I've thought about this rationally and that there's no incongruence. (laughs) Yeah, I'm at my worst when I'm pissed off. Yeah. And then I have this strange ability to tell you exactly why I'm angry. And in my own head, I am, I I make so much sense. Uh What I'm learning is I I actually don't make any sense to the people listening. Right. But in my own head. Makes all kinds of sense, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, what, What is it, what could this do if we begin thinking about this? What, maybe I should ask how you've experienced it. What can this do for the other, whoever we consider the other? So you look at somebody um, I mean, let's, we're talking about division. So you look at the bitter right, whether it's religious or politics, versus the bitter left. And what what would it do for somebody on the right to begin looking at those on the left and saying, and we'll get to the moral foundations in a bit about the differences, but just saying like, oh my gosh, we're all emotional creatures and we're all doing our best to wrap our minds around our gut level responses what could that do in bringing people together? What have you seen? How have you seen that work, or has it worked? I feel like the best way always to get information to people is, um, you know, what Fred Craddock used to call overhearing the gospel. Uh, the best way to help people, for instance, understand what it's like to be a transgender woman is to not talk about it. Um, mm. You know, when I go into the corporate settings and talk about gender inequity, I'm often going into conservative settings where people are not supportive of transgender people. And after a couple of hours with me, it occurs to them, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, she's trans. Wow, okay, so wait, I kind of liked her. She seemed relatively normal, as normal as I am. <laughs> and so now you've not, you've not come in arguing why it's legitimate to be transgender, why this is, in fact, a legitimate diagnosis, which much of conservative America says it's not. You come in talking about something completely different, and they, they see you as a human, mm. and now you've come in through the back door. You haven't tried to come in through their rational mind, uh, showing the legitimacy of gender dysphoria. You have come in through the back door. You've shown the legitimacy of gender inequity, and in the process, you've also sneaked into their heart through their right brain in helping them to see you as a human, just yeah. like them. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a general awareness to us that it's not a good argument that will ever win the day. It's loving well. Yes. Yeah, and I would add to that what I've experienced is vulnerability. Make, yeah. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable 
which what I've experienced in that is I've made myself vulnerable before and people tread all over it. It's just, that's the downside of it. It's a risk. Just like love is a risk. Right. But then there's other times where in being vulnerable, people, whether it, I don't even know that it's conscious, they suddenly become more vulnerable and you begin to see each other more of one another. And it's not, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not the arguments. It's not the, uh, people don't like to be proven wrong. And there was a research done. I think I've said this before on the podcast. The University of Michigan, somewhere in like 2015, uh, I might have the date wrong, but it was definitely University of Michigan. And they showed that when people were presented with facts, so information, arguments, whatever you want to say it, that contradicted their strongly held beliefs, they actually went backward and held those beliefs more fervently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. You don't, you don't open people up. We don't change. We don't help others grow, mature, uh, heal, change through facts. It's all relationship. Yep. And that's true, according to this book, for human beings. Yeah, I think to me it was the, those were probably the two most important uh, realizations that came out of the book. The, the first being we're not primarily rational creatures. And the second um, being that we do not change our opinions unless new information comes to us in a non-threatening way. Yeah, and let's talk about the non-threatening way. Because um, you, you and I have talked about this a lot. We, yeah. we live in a culture of outrage. And I want to delineate for those of us who are listening, there are times to be angry and things we should be angry about, injustices that we need to, that, that should stir something in us in deep places. But the outrage is the presuming the worst about people, judging somebody with the assumption that their motive for whatever they're doing is absolutely and totally evil. It's a dismissal. It's a throwing people out. It's really, this is where I say the bitter left and the bitter right. They're both fundamentalists at the end of the day. They are. And so we've talked about the, the non-threatening piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. As far as where have you, where have you experienced it, this, the feeling of threat, we're seeing it, and then people stiff arm the person who's presenting the information in a threatening way? You know, it's interesting. I, I really always am looking at what's my best return on investment. I actually don't put myself very often any longer in settings that are more confrontational. I don't find that there's much of an ROI on that that has anything positive. So if I believe I'm going into a setting that's going to be debate-based, I'm not participating mm. in it. Uh, it's the, I've been invited to a number of Christian universities, and I'll go as long as I can just talk um, but when they decide they want to turn it into a debate setting, like I had one particular university, we'll let it remain nameless, that booked me and then um, said, well, we're go- we've also booked somebody else who's going to speak as well who says being transgender is not a thing. And I said, oh, I think probably then I shouldn't be coming. And they're like, wait, why? And I said, well, um, would you expect an African-American person to still speak if you brought in another person to say being black isn't a thing? I said, mm. you know, you're denying my identity, and so you've turned this into a debate, yeah. as opposed to me just talking about my life experience. Yeah. If we're if we're sticking in the realm of story, uh, we have a much better chance of being heard than if we're going with uh, didactic information. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason Jesus taught in stories and only in stories. Right. He gets really didactic on the last day of his public ministry. 
when he's asked which of the laws is the greatest. And that's really the only time he becomes very didactic when he says, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And then he knocks them dead by saying, on this are all the law and the prophets based. Yeah. Yep. The rest is story. Yeah. There's, um, there's something to that when you talk about one of the big takeaways because we live in such a defended culture that we are, we, it's like you log on to Facebook looking for someone, something to disagree with. Yeah. And what's interesting, and as we think about next steps a lot on the podcast, I used to say to people when they would get upset uh, because someone asked a, a question about their beliefs or someone was reading a book by a particular author that they didn't care for, people would get angry. I remember someone walking into my office one time when I was still in Michigan and saw a book on my desk and said, oh, that guy's a liberal, and got so mad. And I said, okay, well, if you think they're wrong and you believe yourself to be right, then why do you get so upset by it? And I think there's, there's something to when we, when we come in defended what is it that's causing us to be defended? What are we, it, it, it's possible we can perceive a threat where there is none. Because for some people, just the presence of another individual can be threatening, can be upsetting. I think that takes me to uh, Shakespeare. You know, methinks he protests too much. <laughs> um, I, in my blog this week, I was talking about Fowler's stages of faith, and I was talking about how people in stage three, the conventional stage of faith, cannot tolerate those in stages four, five, or six, and will often attack. And that the more vitriolic the attack, in my own experience, the more legitimacy the journey of those in those stages, and the more terrified the person in stage three is. Because in their being, they know those in stage four, five, and six are ahead of them on the journey. And they're terrified of that and don't want to deal with it. Those just comfortable in stage three don't uh, argue as much with those in the stages further down the line. Interesting. Because they're not threatened by it. But if you know intuitively in your bones that it's time for you to grow on and out of your certainty, because certainty is a myth, if you know that in your bones but you just can't emotionally give it up yet, your uh, ego structure demands it, then you're going to be more vitriolic in your attack against those who are in stages five or in like stage six, even if stage six is people like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Richard Rohr or John of the Cross or Julian of Norwich. You'll just see everything wrong with those people. You know, I'm thinking of the last evangelical church I used to preach in that had a whole contingent, a minority contingent, including in leadership in that church, that thought, Every one of the church fathers and mothers was purely evil. Really? Yeah. I mean, and had books that they, they, <laughs> uh, they were all self-published books, but books that they, they all said, you know, this just shows how evil they are. And, you know, it, you just couldn't argue with that because they were too terrified of the idea that maybe um, their faith was not going to adequately deal with the uncertainties that do, in fact, exist oh. in our world. And w when you just, you just use the word terrified, the, the hardest thing to do, well, I'll speak for me. For me, the hardest thing to do with people like that is not lock horns in an argument. Uh, in just wanting to just landslide bury them. What I'm in the beginning stages of doing, I'll say it that way, or learning, 
is if they're terrified, if it's fear, it's only love that will do anything to drive that out. You know, I was talking to Monique Morris, who spoke at uh, TED Women, where I spoke in uh, November. And she's, uh, <coughs> uh, she's an advocate for girls who have been in the uh, uh, juvenile detention system who come back into the public schools, and she's internationally renowned. And she's been able to make headway in the, um, uh, in the Anglo community that many others have not. And I, I, was, I just love her. And I, I said, Monique, um, why does that world listen to you? And she said, because I lead with love. Hmm. Said because you're not going to change minds if you don't leave with love. She said, yeah. I respect those who are angry because we have every right to be angry. Yeah, of course. But they're not going to be the ones to uh, bring about the final piece of change in yeah. uh, the hearts of um, people who are not people of color. Um, we're only going to bring about those final steps of change if we lead with love. Yeah. Oh, so good. It's like uh, Jesus knew what he was talking about. I am thinking. <laughs> the um, kind of the the heart of of the book, the righteous mind, deals with what he refers to as our moral taste buds, uh, more now they call it moral foundations theory, um, and it's the idea that there are, according to Jonathan Haidt, the author, there's six moral foundations, um, and that those who would trend more conservative, trend more right. Um, have six moral foundations. Those who trend more left uh, or liberal have really rely on three of the six, although there is some of the other three in there. So can we, want, you want to speed through those and then talk about some of the implications? Sure. Um, There's the care harm is the first one. Yeah, but I want to go back okay. a step earlier than that because uh, earlier in the book, he actually uses foundations in a different way. And the six what are later called foundations, he calls passions. And I actually prefer that language because I don't think his six moral passions make sense without his three previous moral foundations. So he says you basically have three moral foundations in the world. You have the moral foundation that says um, that the, the greatest good is to look out for the best interest of the rights of the individual. And this is the individual moral foundation. It would be the moral foundation of Western civilization almost in its entirety. It would be the moral foundation of the United States that was, in fact, pretty secular in its establishment, the rights of the individual, the right of the individual to pursue happiness. So you have mostly the Western world has a moral foundation, and I just, I just prefer this use of the term foundation yeah. that he uses. And then he makes that switch, which I don't quite understand. Um, but that most of the world that I encounter has a moral foundation of the rights of the individual. There's no greater moral good than to look out for the best interest of the individual. But there are two other moral foundations. The second moral foundation is the rights of the tribe, that there's no mm -hmm. greater moral good than to look out for the integrity of the tribe. And this also has a geographical pattern to it, um, the rights of the individual being the firm moral foundation is more a Western civilization, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, the United States, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, the rights of the tribe being uh, the primary moral foundation is primarily an African uh, and Indonesian and to some degree Central and South American moral foundation that there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. 
And then his third moral foundation does not have a geographical component to it. It has a religious or theological component to it. The third moral foundation is the, the demands of the gods, that there is no greater moral good than to obey the demands of the gods. And he says this is the primary moral foundation of all fundamentalism, whatever its form. So yep. whether it's a fundamental a Christianity, a fundamentalism is expressed in, in Islam, a fundamentalism is expressed in, in Judaism. And it is, of course, the desert religions that are religions of scarcity that, uh, that are more prone to this kind of fundamentalism. So you actually have these three moral standards. Yeah. And when you're looking <clears throat> at these moral standards, um, and I think that's the language I've used most often when I've talked about that as, uh, at Left Hand Church where I pastor, these three moral standards are, uh, it's important to understand those because then you realize that, that those of us who are East Coast, West Coast uh, people, I spent 35 years in New York, we don't understand that in 28 states of the United States, the major moral teaching is that men are supposed to be in charge of women uh, at home, at church, and by extrapolation at, in the office. We don't understand the impact of the demands of the gods mm. on our culture as a culture, which really has um, probably appropriately pissed off the fundamentalists who got tired of being ignored and formed the more moral majority in the 1980s to say, well, we're going to get political power too because the only people who've had political power really from the beginning of our republic were people whose moral standard was the rights of the individual, mm. not the demands of the gods or uh, the rights uh, and demands of the tribe. And am I right in saying we're, we're experiencing another shift toward, uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, what, what is it, um, spiral dynamics, we're beginning to move toward a shift of the moral standards toward the rights of the tribe. Yes. So people... You, when you begin looking at this generational shift, which I think is not just generational, I think it's far bigger than that. People are not just saying it's all about me, the individual, but it's also, there's a communal reality. Well, that takes you into the realm of the sociobiologist Edward O. Wilson and so much of the work that he's done, that there are, in fact, nine tribal species and that humans are one of the nine uh, tribal species, but they're, we're the only one of the nine, unfortunately, who has evolved to believe in enemies necessary for the tribe to survive. Mm. The other tribal species, an enemy comes into the camp, they'll unite and willingly sacrifice themselves for the sake of the tribe. They are not purely selfish species. Um, so, like, if you take a look at um, uh, you, uh, one of the things Wilson says, I think it's Wilson who says it, um, actually it might be Hyde, you will never see uh, two chimpanzees walking together holding a ladder. Yeah, that's that's height. Um, that that they are they are not tribal species, uh, but you will see uh, all these insect species work together and willingly sacrifice themselves if an enemy comes into the camp. Mm -hmm. But humans are are the ninth uh, tribal species. He calls it a eusocial species. E u s o c i a l. And he says, we humans have unfortunately evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive, so where no enemy exists, we create one. And so the more <laughs> tribal we become, it means the more likely we are to create enemies that don't exist. 
And Wilson says beautifully, uh, there's a, a great, just I think 90 minute thing he did with um, Terry Gross and Fresh Air that I think more clearly than any other uh, thing I've seen expresses his view on this. He says, we don't get a hold of this, we lose the species and we lose the planet. Wow. So the move toward a tribalism is not, in fact, in our species' best interest. Not religious tribalism, not nationalistic tribalism, not any kind of tribalism um, that sees enemies where they don't exist is going to serve us well. Yeah. Now that does, we are tribal people. One of my other favorite things in this book is actually not a major thesis of the book. It, it comes a little bit later on in it where he takes on the new atheists who say religion has been a very negative uh, and recent um, evolutionary blip in the screen. They don't believe it's going to last. Right. And it's important to point that. out, by the way, Jonathan Haidt identifies as an atheist. He does. So just for those listening, this is not a uh, someone a, from their own camp. As a moral psychologist... Yeah. He says, actually, it was religion that allowed us to thrive as a tribe, mm -hmm. that, or to thrive as a species, rather. Yeah. That before religion, we had never found a way to work beyond the level of blood kin. And as long as we were not able to work beyond the level of blood kin, we had a bad habit of killing one another at very basic, well, fundamental levels. But religion came along, and religion allowed us, for the first time as a species, to work beyond the level of blood kin to the level of tribe. And it was that level that enabled us to begin making all of the strides forward that we made. Yeah. And it's a relatively recent uh, adaptation of the species. And he says it doesn't matter what the religion is. It's specifically two elements. It is the practice of ritual together, and it's the depth of relationship that develops. Yep. And when you put that against either the work of Rene Girard or the work of um, Edward O. Wilson, uh, you realize that neither one of those things require enemies that don't exist. Right. All they require is the good part of a tribe, yep. which is developing close, intimate human relationships and practicing ritual together. Yeah. And if you look at the New Testament, uh, Alexander Shia points out Jesus was one of the first religious leaders advocating for a trans-tribal yep. way of viewing the world. Yep. Talks about loving your enemies, which and, and then shows enemy love through a series of acts. And then you look at the end of the uh, Revelation, and it's one people singing one song from mm -hmm. every tribe and nation and tongue. It's a, uh, yeah, I, I often look at the Bible and have the moments of, man, this is so primitive, so backward. So, And then other times you're like, no, nope, this still can say something. <laughs> I don't think I can read the last chapter of Revelation without, um, uh, without crying. Yeah. The whole view of the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing, healing of the, of the nations. nations. Oh. You know, it's... Um, and it takes you back again to Jesus' last day of public ministry, to his last public utterance before the cross and, and, the, um, and the drama of the cross. And that is to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself with a clear understanding that loving your neighbor is loving any human being with whom you come in contact. Yeah. And the fact that there was, in fact, dead silence in response to that. Mm -hmm. And that Matthew tells us no one <coughs> asked him dared to ask him any more yeah. 
question. Yeah. It was the definitive reality of what his arrival on earth had come to do. Yes. And I want to point out, you said love God, love neighbor, love yourself. And yeah. some who might be listening are like, wait, is that what it's? I thought it was. And I've gone through this with people. If you do not love yourself, and if that language is uncomfortable for you who's listening, think of it this way. If you don't view yourself the way God views you, you're not going to view your neighbor with a whole lot of esteem, love, care, compassion, right. mercy, grace. Uh, so that's just a, yep. that was a side note. But, yep. um, but you did ask, and, I'm, and I never answered your question. <laughs> Back to the six moral passions. If, in fact, your moral standard is the rights of the individual, you're only working from three of the moral passions. If your moral standard is the tribe or the demands of the gods, then you're working from all six moral standards. Mm -hmm. And, or moral passions. And that's why um, you see the far right get so much more passionate about their perspective on things yes. than the more rational, educated left. Yeah. And what's interesting, we'll get into them in a second. I, I think that those on the left have deconstructed three of the moral passions. I'll use that language. I think you're right. In our restructuring, because I still think that there is a world of morality that the left cares about. It's just not the same moral categories that the right cares about. You know, I haven't read his new book. I, Coddling of the American uh, Mind? Yeah, I haven't read it. I've not I, either. I'm kind of hoping that maybe he goes into that, although I, a couple of friends I've talked to who, who have read it said he does not. Because uh, I think that 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 is critical. I think that um, those of us who see the rights of the individual as our moral standard um, have actually given away the last three of the moral passions. Yeah, yeah. So the first moral passion is care, harm. Right. Uh, which for those of you listening, uh, I'll give a quick synopsis and then we'll try to talk about each one, is think about it this way. If I told you a rat came into my house and we killed it, you'd go, oh, gross, glad you got the thing out of there. If I told you a golden retriever puppy came into my house and I killed it, you would, well, some of you are already just thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, why would you use that example? That's horrible. Exactly, because we have an instinct to care. There's been research that shows that if you see the face of a cute baby, um, some of you are like, all babies are cute. No, they're not. <laughs> so, but if you see the face of an infant, Something in us springs up with care uh, that we're supposed to care about. And so the moral matrix for liberals, and we're painting with binary brushstrokes, I realize this, rests more heavily on care harm than the moral matrix does for conservatives. So liberals care for those uh, to whom they are not connected. Conservatives are aimed at those who sacrifice for the group. So you can think about liberals caring for people in a caravan coming from Central America, conservatives aimed at those who sacrifice the Wounded Warrior Project. You know, and I, I find it so interesting in, in looking at how that is, in fact, very early uh, in, in life that that's imprinted. The, mm -hmm. the second is also imprinted early in life, which is uh, on one side, fairness, and on the other side, cheating. Yep. Uh, that if, in fact, we all go to Disney World and somebody jumps in line in front of us, that inflames our fairness passion. Oh, yeah. Uh, because they have been unfair to us. But one of the studies that he points out is that if you took children, I forget how young, it was quite young, it was under a year of age, it might have been six months of age, and if you showed them two stick figures 
one stick figure that helped another person up the stairs, and the other stick figure um, that encouraged uh, Sisyphus, I suppose you could say, um, would push a person back down the stairs, that they showed a clear preference for the stick figure that helped people up the stairs. So fascinating. For the stick figure that was um, more interested in fairness than in cheating. Yeah. And I, I want to say it was six months of age, but I thought that was so fascinating. And that, that early on is in his study that a lot of, uh, before moral psychology was a science, they thought those were the only two. Yeah. That the only two moral passions were care, harm, fairness, cheating. Yep. And then, in fact, early in the book, he says initially he thought there were only five, and then he finally comes up with the Come six. Come up with the six one, yeah. yeah. And the, the fairness cheating, for those listening, um, you can think about it as a way of learning to cooperate. So Paula used the example of helping somebody up the stairs. It's if someone takes over a shift for you so you can leave early on vacation, um, you gush with gratitude and say, I'll do the same thing. Um, that's kind of a polite Response. So for liberals, when it comes to this, this is also one of their major foundations. And you may have heard things like the way it comes out of their mouth is that the wealthy and powerful um, got to where they got by exploiting the poor and the weak, which is unfair or cheating. Conservatives look at uh, those on the left and say they're socialists. They want to take money from those who earned it or spread the wealth around by giving it away to lazy people. That's their version of unfair. So for the left... It's equity. For the right, it's proportionality. You get as much as you worked for on the right. For the left, everyone deserves the same, would be this, this idea of fairness, cheating. Yeah. You want to go to the third? Sure. I love this stuff. Uh, so the third is loyalty betrayal. Um, and so it's the idea of what we already talked about a little bit with the tribes, that if you, for example, are a Yankees fan, you hate the Boston Red Sox. It's just the way it is. And you would never wear a Red Sox t-shirt if you were a Yankees fan. You would burn it, but absolutely you would never in a million years uh, betray your loyalty by doing this. So our innate um, preparation for meeting the adaptive challenges, but we form coalitions, we focus on teammates. Um, for liberals, this is universal. All people are the same. For conservatives, this is uh, more like patriotism, family first. Um, belief unites in the religious world. Loyalty to tribe demands the hatred of others. And so again, you begin seeing this idea of loyalty betrayal and the way it works itself out when you hear people on the left talking in a more universal sense of how we're all connected versus conservatives who say, nope, first thing we need to do is take care of ourselves, America first, country first, as John McCain said before Donald Trump said America first, um, versus no, it's better if we care for everybody. And what you get also with that side is th this is the first. In fact, often I'll, I will switch the order of these and throw in his sixth and make it number three instead uh, because this is actually the, the first one of the six that is not a common side to those whose moral standard is the rights of the individual. Because if your moral standard is the rights of the individual, um, then it is not loyalty to a group that takes precedence over everything else. It is, in fact... Uh, respecting the rights of that individual, mm -hmm. and so that is not one of the one of the moral passions that is typical uh, outside of those whose moral standard uh, is the tribe uh, or the demands of the gods. Yes, yes, it's a fa it's fascinating how yeah. you can't really pin any one 
person down. The, the fourth is authority subversion. So think parent, child, general, private, or colonel, private, captain, whatever, uh, boss, employee. Um, this is hierarchies, which have been a part of the evolutionary process. And authority, many recognize, has brought order, protection. It's less than violence. It's based on patterns, not course of power. It's not inherently exploitive. Um, for the liberal side, um, there's a growing sentiment of anti-hierarchy for greater equality and cooperation versus power. For conservatives, they appeal to natural order found in creation or its sacred texts um, and agreed upon social order. So, so if you take a look at, um, at how this plays out with the three moral standards, um, the authority for the tribe is with the leadership of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, the authority with the gods is with the gods. The authority, if you're moral standard of the rights of the individual, is with the individual. So you hear one phrase commonly spoken by the left that I actually don't care for, which is your truth. Yes. Well, I believe there's such a thing as objective truth or something. No, I don't actually. I believe there's something <laughs> really, really, really close to objective truth what I would call rigorous intersubjective truth, but like one person in a million will want to talk about that. Um, But you hear all the time in that uh, more liberal world that thinks that the the ultimate uh, moral standard is the rights of the individual. Um, I'm glad you're living into your truth. Mm -hmm. Or speak your truth. And speak your truth. People often say that about me. They'll say, oh, you're, you're living into your truth. And I say, well, I'm actually just living into the truth of the fact that I'm transgender. So it is, it is a truth. It's not just my truth. Right. But that is, um, that's a moral standard that those, uh, or a moral passion, that those um, with that first moral, moral standard, the rights of the individual, um, that they've really just gone out of their way to not take uh, that moral passion, the authority of... Um, uh, of the tribe or the gods. Right. Now, in this one particularly, Cynthia Bourgeau has written about holarchy. Yeah. And Ken Wilber has also started picking this up. The idea that things can be a part and a whole. So they're a whole unto themselves. So you have a whole atom, but an atom is a part of a molecule. Right. And that there is, and it's interesting um, that Height says this is more on the conservative, they appeal to nature. But now there's a larger growing edge of philosophy that's beginning to point toward the fact that there is some sort of hierarchy that we witness in nature and that with every successive evolution, the uh, things are more united and more complex. There's more, greater complexity and greater unity. So you have subatomic particles, which are rather simple. They form atoms, a little bit more complex, some unity there. They form molecules, cells, living organisms, ecosystems, uh, which I find really fascinating. The other thing, which I said earlier, is I think there's been a tearing down and there's a now a rebuilding or a, recon- a deconstruction and reconstruction. I find it interesting how authoritative, y- what you just pointed, your truth is, it, uh, not just for you, we like to think it's that, but if I disagree with your truth, that's now a full-on assault on what you perceive as your authority. Right. So there is some sort of, Authority. We're all living with some perceived authority, something higher and greater than ourselves. Um, and so I think in some ways it's a, we fool ourselves into believing we're completely and totally independent. 
Um, it reminds me of a graffiti I saw one time that said spread anarchy and someone crossed it out and said stop telling me what to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th- there's, um, we are in fact a tribal species and I think that has to be respected um, or understood actually even when you talk about these different moral standards. So there is a, uh, there's an extreme to which the rights of the individual uh, can go that wants to deny the uh, the tribal reality of the species. And I think that's some of the justified frustration that the right has with particularly uh, the liberal uh, academic world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number five, yep. sanctity degradation. So think about it this way. Uh, imagine if somebody cut up an old American flag and used the remnants of it as a dish rag. Or think about if a someone came across a human corpse and said, well, I'm hungry, and uh, let's butcher this because why waste good food? This is um, sanctity degradation, it's important to point out, point out is tied to disgust. Um, and so there's the idea of like the cleanliness is next to godliness, but disgust also evolved within us. It's a sense of knowing what not to eat. So like when you smell the milk and it's sour and spoiled and you pull it away from your nose, that instinctual disgust response is protecting you. But we brought in this idea of sacredness, um, and that binds us into moral communities, which means when someone desecrates what we have said is sacred, there's hell to pay, which is uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. And so for, for liberals, left-leaning folks, um, some of that sanctity degradation, you'll find that around the environmental concerns. You'll find it around the toxin cleanse they'll do with their body. Um, you'll see they're raging against capitalism. Um, conservatives, you hear sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage. Your body is a temple, the American flag, our sacred texts. For me, it was the church buildings, don't run in the house of the Lord. Um, that kind of idea. Oh, yeah. So what, um, what, have, what have you experienced with that? Well, I find that this is another one that is much stronger if your moral standard is the tribe, that there's no greater moral good than the, than the uh, integrity of the tribe or the gods, that there's no greater moral good than the demands of the gods. It is uh, less of a moral passion for those whose moral standard of the, is the rights of the individual. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, it is extremely strong, I think, with... Um, particularly the fundamentalist religions is where they will create sanctity in places that, um, and this has always been true of religion, to increase those things that are, uh, that are supposedly sacred as opposed to um, uh, a centered set of those things. Yeah, and he, in in the, uh, in the book, I, and I just looked this up, page 177, is in talking about this whole idea of sacred, profane, sanctity, degradation. He says, shallow are the souls that have forgotten how to shudder. Mm. And talks about how he sees this yeah. trend toward looking at what was once sacred and just shrugging our shoulders. and Oh, that's old fashioned. That's stupid. That shallow are the souls that have forgotten how to shudder. That's Page 177, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so last one, liberty oppression. 
Someone decides they are in charge and they insist on doing things their way. For some people, you go, nope, it's not happening. For other people, um, they say, yeah, um, if it's my way, if I agree with your way, then I'm with you. Um, it's that idea of someone who tells you you can't do something in that reaction we have inside of us. So it's an evolved response, Height would argue, to one being, one uh, person dominating the and taking the resources of the group. So it's interesting here, both sides hate oppression, uh, but they see oppression um, differently. And this foundation is, of course, tied to other foundations. For the liberal, again, it's about equality. It's more universal. There's a deep reliance on the care-harm um, standard here or passion here. Um, and it's about caring for the underdog, the victims, the powerless. It's about opposing the capitalist swine, championing equality, civil rights. Conservatives, liberty is more concerned about their groups. So it's the don't tread on me stickers that we um, see on the back of uh, vehicles driving around. It's no taxation. It's give me my guns. It's free market without regulations. And again, so you see both groups often will lean into one of these moral passions. They just do it very differently. Well, you see, I think all three moral standards finding expression, or all three moral passions finding expression um, in all three moral standards, if you, if you take them in my order, uh, the care harm, uh, the fairness of cheating, and the liberty oppression, you, you find equal levels of all three of those in all three um, moral standards. But interestingly, those who have as their, their moral standard the rights of the individual, they look at the other three, a loyalty, um, well, loyalty as defined by the tribe and as defined by the gods, uh, and that's not good because it should be defined by the individual. And authority, well, authority is defined by the religion and defined by uh, the tribe. And that, well, that's, that's not as it should be. And sanctity, well, yes, sanctity of life is defined by a right-wing view of Scripture, uh, what, what, whether you're talking about the Koran or whether you're yeah. talking about uh, Christianity. And they don't see any room in those last three moral passions for their own moral standard, the rights of the individual mm -hmm. to exist. And yet all six moral passions are passions of the species. Yes. And so one of the things he says that I don't think he tells us how to do it very well is that those of us whose um, moral standard are the is the rights of the individual, we've got to learn to regain our moral passion in terms of loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Yes. And I would say, for example, here's another example where I think there's been some deconstruction, reconstructing with the loyalty foundation. I find it fascinating that someone like AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, if she doesn't give a crap, if, she, it's, if there's no loyalty in her about government, about the United States, about it, why is she doing so much and working so hard to get into a position of leadership? Is there some sort of loyalty toward a different place? Why not go and do something brand new? Why go into an already existing institution to try to reform it? That we, we see that as a, I'm out, I'm done. It, I mean, I would say it for myself in a less extreme example, why am I still in the church? Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And so for some, they would say, well, you've betrayed where you've come from or you've left where you've, but I'm still in the form. There, there's something 
there's some sort of loyalty. There's something that's tethered me to this that I can't quite explain. Peter Rollins would call it the fidelity of betrayal, that sometimes you have to betray what you know to be loyal to it. Um, you have, uh, and again, back to Alexander Shia, he points to Joseph, who betrayed the tribe by staying with Mary. And that his, in that culture, the biggest calling is the tribe, especially your own father. And how dare you bring shame on the family by marrying someone who got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, because no one would have believed that. And so there's this sense of like, to be loyal, sometimes you have to betray. And I think it'd be interesting, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I think there's something there of, there's still a loyalty, but to be loyal to it, we question it. To be loyal to it, we'll knock pieces off or burn some things down so we can rebuild something. You know, I, I think this would be the place where I would say that um, I'm surprised at this point, given the way I've been treated uh, by, the, by the, the, a large part of the community, that I'm still very definitely a Christian, and I am very definitely a follower of Jesus. And I very definitely find um, my loyalty uh, to Jesus, the authority in Jesus, um, and the sanctity is defined by Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I, am, I am definitely a Christian, and I, uh, I don't hold it in a, a stage three kind of a way. I would hold it much more that the stage five. Stage three would be conventional faith or traditional faith, and stage five would be a mystical faith. I, I certainly uh, am hold, uh, willing to hold it more mystically, yeah. even to the point of what uh, Rohr says in his new book, The Universal Christ, um, with, uh, just or The Cosmic Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's that idea. All things are sacred. Yeah. The ground is always holy. Yeah. I was having this conversation. I was actually surprised yesterday with, by somebody who was really calling into question the idea of Christ is all and is in all, which is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. And I began asking, what do, you, what do you think is the thing, the force, the energy, holding the entire universe together? And if there's life out there that's not the breath of the Spirit, where does that life come from? Is there another source of life? And if you see a non-Christian family together who clearly loves one another, either what you're experiencing looks a lot like love, but it's not or it is, which means that there's something of the divine present there that's every yeah. bit as much. So in some ways, again, back to the sanctity degradation, there's what I, where, I'm, where I've been led to is like, it's all sacred. Well, yes. I mean, if you take a look, how did God reveal God's self to us? Primarily through the 14 billion years ago, through the Big Bang, God revealed God's self to us as this, this ever-expansive, mysterious... Uh, expanding reality that is right. based in what? In, uh, in an element that's on the periodic table? No, uh, that the only ultimate reality, quantum physics tells us, is uh, a pattern of relationships between non-material entities. Yes, so energy. The core <laughs> is, is relationship. And if, in fact, the core is relationship and the most powerful uh, uh, element in the universe, if you will, would be love. Right, yep. Yes, yes, yes. That, that's the whole idea. So it's all sacred. All sacred. When he says, take your shoes off, Moses, you're on holy ground. I remember reading this from Frederick Buechner back in my 20s. Buechner said, Moses, all of it's holy. Yeah. Every 
last piece of it is hope. Yeah. The problem is that we're half asleep. Yeah. Uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner said, t- talked about that Moses story, and he pointed out the mir- it wasn't a miracle that the bush was on fire not burning up. It was a miracle that Moses was awake and aware long enough to see yeah. that the bush was not burning up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So when, when it comes to these, the, uh, the moral foundations, as you called it, and then you delineated from the six moral passions. Moral um, standards. Moral standards. better language. The three um, moral standards and six moral passions. Okay, there it is. Uh, so then we talk about not being someone who threatens others. We talk about this idea of how our mind works. Um, the emotions then followed very shortly after in a way that we almost don't even see by this rational thinking. What, what, are your, what would be your big takeaway from the book? Like thinking about those who are listening, tons of information in this podcast. If you, what has this done to you in how you've, yeah, I thought think, about other I people. I think personally, it's told me that I'm on the right path because I knew for me in transitioning, I was you know, well known enough within the evangelical world that I, I knew that embedded in my identity were responsibilities that I couldn't just disappear, which would have been nice, um, that I needed to be a, a spokesperson um, for a community that is uh, not treated well uh, right. in, in our American culture. And I, um, I really purposefully have taken that the direction of um, uh, devoting more of my time not to the subject of uh, gender dysphoria or what it means to be transgender, but taking my time instead to gender inequity. Partly because I believe if you get gender equity, you get everything else for free. Mm. But that's a different uh, topic for a different podcast. <laughs> um, but part of it is because I know that that's ultimately the best way to actually impact the world uh, is to just let them see me as a human yeah. and for it to be not nothing but incidental that yes. I happen to be transgender. So it says to me that I was on the right path. It also explains to me why I couldn't leave the church behind mm. and why I still believe it's the hope of the world. What is it about religion that enables us to, uh, to work beyond um, the level of blood kin it was ritual and the depth of the relationships we developed. That's yeah. the local church. Yep. And then when I put that together with the person of Jesus who calls me to all six moral passions, um, that then is why I'm planting a new church with the help of your church Yeah. Uh, in Boulder County, Colorado. Yeah. yeah the, one of the biggest takeaways for me, and uh, part of it is his, his own story, where he travels to another culture yeah, and experiences a whole yeah. different way of encountering and engaging the world and recognizes the this the solid thinking feeling behind all of it and comes to respect it, embrace it, and love it in, in all the right ways. Yeah. And I think... Um, when I read that, I wrote a note in the margin of the book. One of my first therapists said to me, everybody you ever meet has a really good reason for behaving the way they do, whether or not they're conscious of it. They have a really good reason for behaving the way they do. It does not excuse their behavior, may not make sense to you, 
but they have a really good way, a reason for behaving the way they do. And I have held on to that for so long, especially reading this book. Shows like everyone, that person in your office you can't stand because they voted for the other candidate and they're still talking about it two years later. Every time you, they have a really, really good, good reason for behaving that way. And my friend Adam used to say, don't say to people what's wrong with you. Get curious about what happened to them. Yeah. And I think this book, it's really changed the way I view people, primarily those with whom I disagree, of wanting to get curious. And it's giving me like um, categories. Oh, I think that might be care harm. Oh, it might be. Yeah. And it was interesting. I saw back-to-back news stories about uh, former President Obama, and they had a part of his speech. And right after that, it was President Trump and part of his speech. And my goodness, you could see these moral categories just oozing out of them. And it's like, yeah. oh, this is, this is what it is. Yeah, and if you understand um, Trump's background, and if you, know, if you spend a lot of time in New York, you do understand a little bit more about his background because his father, Fred, was pretty well known. You really begin to see um, why he has chosen to approach life the way he has. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the way Roy Cohn came into his life and what caused Roy Cohn to be to see things that way. You know, my uh, doctorate's in pastoral counseling, and I still keep a small counseling practice. And I have uh, very strong right-wing people in my practice, and it's always really good uh, for me to see what caused them to get there. Yeah. Um, because there are always uh, reasons that to them made all the sense in the world yeah. uh, as to why they ended up with the, with the worldview they have. Exactly. Yeah, and, and for you who are listening, one of my encouragements would be is to get curious. Maybe first it's just get curious about yourself. Um, I, I, I recognize so many, so many people, we're not aware of why we believe what we believe. Um, but I'd also encourage you to get curious about those with whom you disagree. L- work at listening, work at connecting. Um, maybe you can't stand to be in the room with people like that, so find the material they're reading, go to their websites, and just begin reading. Uh, and, and not doing so as, as much as you can, withhold judgment in commentary, just observe. And I found that that's such a good first step into hearing and listening and embracing uh, others. I think underneath it too, I think if everyone can understand that you may be right, um, but you will not ever convince another of your rightness or even to consider your perspective unless they know that you love them. Right. Right. Well, you're right about that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We could talk about this for hours. Actually, Paul and I are going to lunch right now, and I guarantee we'll probably still talk about this. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a part two at some point. Why not? But for now, we're out of time. So thank you for being here a second time. Oh, thank you for having me a second time. Absolutely. So my hope for those of you listening is first that you would read the book. Again, uh, the name is, uh, uh, the title is The Righteous Mind. And second, um, the next time you're speaking with someone, the next time you find yourself in a disagreement, uh, my hope is that you'd remember that the person you're looking at arrived at their convictions, their values, their beliefs using the same processes as you. They just have different backstories. 
They have different information, different experiences. And, and hopefully that will lead you and them one step forward, uh, simply recognizing that we're all doing our best with what we've been given. So if you can remember just that, maybe we'll learn more and more how to judge favorably. So with that said, thank you so much for joining with us today. And until April 9, as always, much love and peace be with you.